0: Good evening, everybody, and uh, I want to welcome you to what we are referring to now as Wednesday, Wednesday night study. Um, one of the reasons why we're calling it that is because it's Wednesday night. Um, the other one is because we're studying Um, An additional one is, as you've probably noticed over the last few uh, uh, years, we've actually picked up a program called Encounter, Men's and Women's Encounter. And so for a number of years, this time in the uh, the evening on Wednesday nights has been called Encounter. We don't really know, uh, couldn't even figure out where that ultimately came from. Um, and so since encounter is gonna be used for men's and women encounter, we're just kind of referring this to what it is, which is uh, a time for us to come together and to study the word of God. Um, so if, um, if you wouldn't mind, I wanna just share with you one more thing before we jump into this, which is why do we do this? Um, why is it that uh, the, this, this, this night um, has value and importance? Um, I love seeing new faces. I love seeing old faces that are coming back. I mean, that's a pretty common thing that we actually see. Um, what we try to do here is recognize um, that there's lots of different things in the life of, an indiv- of, life of a person um, that are needed to help them grow and become more like Jesus Christ. And so as a church, we don't try to accomplish everything on Sunday morning, just so you know. Uh, I remember when Julie Davis, who was our children's minister for 10 years, She came here, and we began to talk a lot about philosophy of ministry um, and what are the different things that a child needs. And I just remember thinking, because my wife is really good at this. My wife was really good. I didn't grow up in a family that seemed to care about a well-balanced diet. I think my mom kind of intuitively did that. But Andrea's family was very serious about, you know, you have a salad, and then you have, like, these dishes, these vegetables, and then you have a meat, and then you have, like, a dessert. And um, I thought, that's kind of interesting. I mean, I guess that's how normal people eat. And I just thought that's, that's a good way for us to think about in terms of how we need to be um, fully mature followers of Jesus Christ. That there are times that different things have value and worth in our lives. And so sometimes it's really important for us to, to recognize not only God's command to go, but also just the natural part of that that when your faith is alive, there's going to be a very natural part in which what you're going to want to do is share that with others through service or uh, particularly the the sharing of the gospel. So going is something that is normal for people. Gathering should be a normal aspect that uh, in your life that you recognize that you are not designed to be all alone, but actually to engage with other believers. And so we emphasize the gathering element, not because we're trying to grow a church, although we are, but faithfully to God so one of the reasons why we're so serious about that gathering component is because we read the bible and we see this over and over and over again love one another care for one another be there for one another rebuke one another and so those one another texts even the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control those virtues are meant to exist in biblical community Therefore, gathering is an important aspect of what we do. And we have life groups and different uh, times where people come together and they just, they do life together, okay? And then there's a need for us, actually, on this grow component. And it's always the hardest one because don't you grow when you go and don't you grow when you get, yeah, 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 okay. But this is a little bit different. This is kind of more of a focusing grow element in which what we are doing is this. We are saying that we need to grow in our understanding, but when I say that, hear me, I am totally convinced that the kind of growing that we are gonna talk about, the growing that we are going to be focusing on is a blending together of heart and mind. That we don't wanna kind of juxtapose or create some kind of a false dichotomy where is this a mind class or is this a heart class? The answer is yes. It is heart and mind that God is after. It is heart and mind that God wants us to be a a unified person, a unified being. So as my mind is informed, my heart should be affected. And as my heart is being affected, then my mind should also follow it. So it is both of these two things together. So to grow in our understanding of who God is, as well as our obedience to him. And if I'll just be honest with you, the older I get, the more I understand the value and the importance of obedience in every relationship that I can think of. I remember my dad telling me when I was a little boy, obedience for obedience sake, and I fought him on that? What do you mean for obedience sake? No, dad, there's gotta be a bigger reason, you know, the great eight-year-old philosopher, Jim Johnson, against his father, right? I just get, no, not, and the older I get, the more that I realize there, there really is. When the military goes out to war, obedience why for obedience sake there's something that's just necessary just and i'm growing in my understanding of who jesus is and there is a a deeper sense of appreciation of obedience to him for obedience sake because i live in a time and in a culture that is more and more growing like away from what i know and what i believe and I, can't, I couldn't figure some things out if I were to just follow culture anymore. As culture um, leaves me, okay, because now I'm 48 years old. So as I find myself more uh, can disconnected from the culture, all of a sudden I find myself leaning more and more on God's word. And I kinda like that actually, I'm growing more comfortable to it, but everything kinda made sense and I was always wanting to preach a gospel that was uh, you know, kind of just was rational and all of these things. And the more that I look at the gospel, the more that I study the gospel, the more that I go after these issues, the more that I realize that there comes a point in time in which God says, trust me. Why? Let me, let me just tell you who my name is. My name is I Am. I'm the one that always has existed, trust me. And it makes a lot of sense. So we are gonna be studying on Wednesday nights the, the book First Timothy. Uh, hopefully you grabbed a handout. They are located in the back. So if you're sitting down now, um, uh, did, did everybody kind of get one? Or we, we have a lot of people who didn't. Raise your hand if you did not get a handout. Okay, there's a few of you that are missing ones. Um, Nancy, would you do me a favor? Would you grab them? And just, if, you, if you don't have one and you would like one, if you would just raise your hand, Nancy is gonna do a great job just kind of passing these out. Thank you, Nancy, so much. There's some up here too. Um, But here's what we're going to be doing. We are going to be unpacking Uh, This text, 1 Timothy, and we are going to be doing it in a way which is verse by verse. I'm hoping this is going to work. It's technology, though, so it makes me a little nervous, to be honest with you. But here's the good news. Um, Whether or not this works with me or not, the handout will be able to cover it, and I'll just have to write down keywords and kind of show you where I'm going with it. Tonight, what I would like to do, and this is the the beauty of trying to work with this new technology, the beauty of it is, is that I'm going to be working on just the first three verses. So for the first three verses of 1 Timothy chapter one, that is where we are going to begin. So if you take a look at your text, it says this. 1 Timothy chapter one, verses one through three. Probably wouldn't be a bad idea for me to also point out, I will be studying out of the ESV. Um, the English Standard Version is the version that you'll find in the pews in front of you. I um, would also recommend you, if you don't have a copy of that, and you, by the way, Version is an amazing app on your phone. You probably have that. If you ever want one of these, please feel free to take one. Um, one of the reasons why we're using the ESV is that it, um, it is very uh, predictable And i mean it's in a good way predictable it is very straightforward um the the wording might be a little more than you're used to it's probably a little more cumbersome than like the niv or even the nlt which we use for a number of years here Um, but it is it is probably one of the best translations along with the new american standard version to, uh, to teach like this, to literally walk through and to make some connections on key words and key ideas and, and especially how they fit together. It is what is known as a, as a more uh, literal style in terms of translation. The other ones aren't, aren't liberal in the sense that they're just making stuff up. Um, but this one tries to not mess with it, and it kind of forces us as interpreters to, to pay attention to the to the finer details. So that's one of the reasons why we've gone to it, and that's one of the reasons why we're doing this. One last thing I want to say before I jump into it is this. I hope that you um, see kind of even how I'm going to be unpacking this, and I will be theologizing, which is just talking about how all these things fit together as we go along. But I would like for you to even see Um, how to like dismantle or to dissect a text so that you can see how these things fit together because how many of you have heard like a Ryan Vincent or a Drew Moss or a Steve Broadway preach a sermon you're like where'd you get that from or have you heard a great preacher and you're like I wonder where he got that from I mean hopefully he got it from the text if not we need to take him outside the city gate and stone him to death right so hopefully, that's, hopefully they're getting it from the text. It's not just magic that they're making up in their minds. And sometimes it's good to sit down and say, okay, so if we are going to look at this, then let's make sure we do, we do it in such a fashion um, that we can see what's going on. So we are going to be looking at the letter of 1 Timothy, which means the first two things that we are going to actually be looking at or paying some special attention to is, one, this guy right here, the Apostle Paul, as well as our good friend down here, Timothy. So both of these characters are, uh, are central to the text. And one of the things that we're going to be looking at in this, particular, um, uh, in this particular study on Wednesday night is we're going to be looking at this letter from Paul to Timothy. And why is that important that we remember that is because whenever we study something in the Bible, we need to know what kind of book is it, what kind of literature, what kind of genre is it. And then there's some things that are going to teach us about how to interpret it. Okay, so going back, and many of you have heard me say this for a long time, and I'm just going to keep on saying it because we forget this, is that the Bible was not written first to us. It was written to us. Hear me. I believe the Bible was written to us. I believe that the Holy Spirit does a work today in us as we study his word, okay? But it wasn't written. It doesn't actually say Jim to David. It doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say Jim to Sunnybrook. It actually says, Paul to Timothy. And so we need to remember that when you're actually studying a particular book of the Bible, you say, what kind of book is it? And this is actually a letter, which means you know what a letter is. A letter has an author and the letter has an audience. It has someone who's going to write it and it has a recipient. And we need to understand that because the number one question that we have when we study the Bible is not actually, how should we interpret the letter? Most people say that the problem is, the problem is an issue of interpretation. For those of you that have heard me over the years, you would know that I don't I say this really isn't the biggest problem. Interpretation is not where churches get angry and they and they and they ultimately disagree. Now there might be different interpretations, but this usually is not the primary place. It's not the interpretation of the text. What is it? Do you remember? Application. It's how we apply the text that is going to cause some problems. So for example, um, uh, what must we do to be saved? Acts chapter two, repent and be baptized each and every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins. What is the interpretation of that text? People wanted to know how to be saved. Peter told them that they needed to repent and to be baptized. What is baptism? I mean, you can just go through and exegete it and there's no question about that. Then you and I, at the end of the day, have to come back and say, so should we do that as well, okay? i mean we've answered that and said yes we believe that that kind of applies for us today but repentance applies for us today baptism applies for us today being filled with the holy spirit applies for us today not all churches do that and by the way when you go well no it just says it we should do it well there are other verses in the bible um that kind of give pretty straightforward commands jesus says greet one another with a holy kiss come here well, straightforward. Interpretation, literally, interpretation is greet one another with a holy kiss, meaning kiss both sides of the face. That's the interpretation of it. Not, that's not where the dilemma is. The dilemma is, should we do that? That's, the, that's, that's, that's where it comes into play. And so one of the things in order for us to have good application is to have solid interpretation, which remembers there is an author. And there is an audience. Author Paul. So let's talk a little bit about the Apostle Paul. Um, And I'm gonna be giving you some additional verses that you can go back and take a look at. Um, The Apostle Paul is someone that grew up within um, the Jewish establishment and was an expert in the law. Most likely, he was being trained at some level to be a rabbi. He was a Pharisee, and he was of the strictest sect of the Pharisees so he is someone who was you would consider him to be a lawyer but lawyers within Jewish community even to this day don't just work in the kind of the, the sector of the world in which business and governments run but in there is a religious lawyer even to this day while we were in Israel um, our, uh, our guide was in the process of getting a divorce and that divorce was going to be handled by a rabbi the, the religious courts were the ones that were going to, to begin that whole process. So there's a lot of cultures where religion still has a very prominent place within all of culture. So Paul would have been a religious attorney, a religious lawyer, who understood the law and then understood how to obey it. That's where he comes from. His original name was not Paul. That is his Latin name. But his original name was what? Saul first time we actually see Saul described in the Bible is actually found in Acts chapter 7 verse 58, which matters. Why? Acts 7 is Stephen's great speech. Stephen was just appointed as a leader in the church to care for widows, okay? That's what he was designed to do, make sure that those in need within the community of faith were being cared for. And Stephen, in the midst of all of this, is also giving a defense of who Jesus Christ is. He is grabbed, he is put before the religious establishment, and they condemn him. He gives a wonderful speech. If you want a, one chapter that describes all of Israel's history, just read Acts 7. It is the, literally the summary of Israel's history. And Stephen's point is this. Every time God sends a prophet, we kill him. Every time. That's how you know they're a the prophet, because we killed him. Okay, if you ever want to wonder, did we kill him? Yeah, well, then he was a prophet. That's Stephen's accusation. And at that, they gnash their teeth, and they're mad at him as he describes, I see Jesus standing, literally, as well, ready to receive me. They gnash their teeth, they drag him out, they stone him. And after they're done stoning him, it makes this reference in Acts 7, 58, that they laid their coats at the feet of the apostle Paul, and the apostle, or sorry, at Well, he is the Apostle Paul, but Saul, Saul of Tarsus. They left their coats by him as they went and they did this deed, killing this leader of the church. And it says Saul was there giving approval to his death. So that's Saul. Um, We know then in Acts chapter 9 that while he is on the road to Damascus, um, which is a road that kind of... There is in... Israel, which would be in this part of the world over here. So this is the Dead Sea, and it's a little smaller. It's really not meant to to show this, but there is a, a road that goes up here from the Holy Land up into Syria. That is the Damascus Road. And so the Apostle Paul is on his way, on that road, to find Christians in Damascus so that he might persecute them as well. And while he is on that road, Jesus appears to him and blinds him and says, and I I thought this is interesting, his conversion is this promise. I need to show you how much you must suffer for my name. I'm going to drag you before kings and I'm gonna drag you before, uh, you know, these different judicial officials and you will suffer much for my name. Which reminds me that especially the church in the West, we're always trying to figure out ways to market the church. We're trying to figure out ways to make it more palatable to people. I mean how many how many of you are converted with this speech you know i'm here to make your life really really hard i'm here to show you how complex i mean no 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 no, no. Anyway, why would anybody sign up for that well and here here listen because it's true like that's why i want a part of that because it's true because it lines up with reality but when we live in a day and in an age when reality is for us to decide it's pluralistic it's relativistic, it's decided by the individual or by the culture, Saying all of that is gone. The apostle Paul is Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus. He encounters Jesus Christ, he blinds him, and this is who I am, I'm the one that you are persecuting. Why are you persecuting me? And his life is radically changed. The next time that we actually see him is in Acts chapter 13. He kind of disappears. Uh, we have Peter come up in 10, 11, and 12. And Peter is still kind of the apostle as they're in Jerusalem, which is down over here. Um, they're kind of that's sort of focus um, of the of the church is, that right now the church is not really going very far and now all of a sudden everything is going to change in the book of Acts and chapters 13 14 15 16, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, and 28 are all Paul, okay? So you just have the focus of the writing of the book of Acts is on Paul and his journey to this part of the world right here. And so that's where we know him as Saint Paul, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles. And I just want to show you some of the key areas on a map here. I love maps. You guys like maps? I just love maps. Um, And I'll just kind of show you. Let me get rid of, oh, I didn't mean to do that. I want to do that. There we go. Erase that. Um, I'll show you the different areas uh, that kind of, uh, where the church begins is down here in, obviously, in Jerusalem, and it spreads north all the way up to Antioch. And so that is essentially the Holy Land. And so that becomes the primary way in which the first 13 chapters in the book of Acts, where we actually see the church beginning to grow from Jerusalem into Samaria, and then it extends even further north. But then actually we see the apostle Paul, he takes off and the apostle Paul by ship travels. And the first missionary journey covers this land space right here, as you kind of see the the, the phrase there, Galatia. Um, That is where the Apostle Paul in Acts chapters 13, 14, and 15 travels to those places, and he shares the good news about Jesus Christ. Um, Lystra, and that city's going to matter actually here in a second, but Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe, he shares the gospel, goes through great persecution, and now all of a sudden the gospel begins to spread. So just notice here, by the way, the gospel has already taken root in the Holy Land, and now all of a sudden it's in Turkey. Now as the adventures of Paul continue on, what we're actually going to see is that it's going to continue into this region here, which is on the very west coast, which the city of Ephesus, that's going to matter for our study this Wednesday night. The city of Ephesus, and also located in that area, are the seven churches of Asia Minor. The apostle John was on a tiny little island, Um, see if you can see me making that a lot darker, Tiny little island right here called Patmos, and that is where John was, and he writes this letter to the churches, which are just Ephesus is one of the churches, by the way, um, that, uh, that he writes to uh, in the, in the, for the book of Revelation. So that whole area is the cities of Ephesus, the cities of Colossae, and that is his second missionary journey, but it continues on even after that. And we actually see that the next section, Acts 16, 17, 18, and 19, we have, and these books matter to us as well. All of a sudden, this is known as Greece. Lower part is Acacia, and the top part is known as Macedonia. And so you have all of these cities. The city of Philippi is actually located right there, okay? So you can see that. That's Philippi. And all of a sudden, you've got Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, and Athens, so this is how the gospel is truly spreading. And by the way, for those of you that are incredibly grateful, for, for those of us, and not, hopefully not all of us, I love that the gospel now has gone all over the world. But for someone who gained um, familial acceptance of the gospel through parents who had European descent, What's interesting is it appears that the Apostle Paul, um, before he ends up going to Philippi and into Macedonia and then down to Corinth, it looked like he was wanting to go to Persia and to India, which is, by the way, where some other Apostles went, okay? The Matthew went in that direction, by the way, and is, uh, did some great work over there. Um, but he, Matthew goes that way, Paul seems to be going that way, Acts 16, the spirit of Jesus would not let him go in that direction, and he has this man in Macedonia say, come over here and preach to us, and that singular event, and then the, the follow-up from that converts Europe, and honestly, I just am grateful for that, I just am, had nothing to do with it, it reminds me of just God's grace, had nothing to do with that, Um, It's interesting how just small things like that and the apostles being faithful uh, gives us an example. So those are the different cities that happen there. And then the last last area for you to just kind of, I guess, be at some level aware of, um, we'll do this one in blue, would be actually in the Roman world where the apostle Paul writes a letter to, but actually doesn't get to go see until the very end of the book of Acts. So those are the kind of the quadrants. The other area, which I guess has some, some significant value in the early part of the church, would be this peninsula down here, the Egyptian peninsula. And so that is where the church began to grow in the early century. So all of this is in that hub of the, of the Mediterranean Sea. So you've got Egypt right there. You've got the Holy Land. You've got Turkey, uh, which is Asia Minor. And then you've got Greece, and then you've got Rome. And it is from this epicenter right here that we see the book of Acts happening. The book of Acts literally unfolding before us. And the Apostle Paul becomes a great example of that. Um, Our good uh, recipient of this letter, Timothy, actually comes from a city in this area here, if you can see where I'm drawing it. He comes from a city, Lystra, L-Y-S-T-R-A where Paul would have gone to in his first missionary journey, um, chapters 14 and 15 of the book of Acts. That's where the apostle Paul went. And it appears that he either converted Timothy during that particular time, or that his mom who was Jewish and his father was Greek, at some point before Paul gets there, that conversion takes place. But most, we don't really know exactly how that works. We do know his mom was Jewish and um, Paul's going to commend her wonderful faith in 2 Timothy. Um, but before that, we don't know, know exactly how all of that uh, Timothy's conversion. We don't have an encounter described in the book of Acts of Timothy hearing Paul preach and coming to Christ. Uh, but we do know that Paul is going to pick him up on his way to, uh, to Philippi uh, because he wants to take him with him. So this young man of great faith, that is who we are going to be studying, uh, Paul and Timothy. Uh, both of them, I guess, of, of Jewish heritage. Paul, a Roman citizen, and that's actually going to matter. Um, because one of the reasons why Paul is writing this letter um, is to help Timothy stay at Ephesus. And we don't really know exactly where Paul is at, but Paul has most likely been released from prison in Rome that we see in the end of the book of of Acts. And he is um, going to Spain, or uh, we, we know church history says that he went to Spain and he went back to Ephesus and he did some work there. But the apostle Paul now has a number of churches. If you take a look at that map, I mean, the Apostle Paul established many, 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 many of these churches, and I don't know if you've ever just kind of thought for a moment, imagine that none of you know who Jesus is. Nobody in Stillwater knows anything about Jesus. Remember, think about yourselves as a, as a Greek culture, Greek-Roman culture, and there might be a Jewish synagogue in town that knows kind of the old parts of, of, the, of the Old Testament, and then imagine I walk into town and I begin to tell you about Jesus. And I share with you about Jesus, and I talk to you about Jesus, and um, and, he, and he and he lived in Jerusalem, and because and a lot of these places are far from Jerusalem, right? They don't have the Jewish culture, and he died for your sins. So now I tell you the gospel story, and I, you need to you need to follow him, you need to be obedient to him. But by the way, no Bible. And I'm here, let, let's say I'm here for, uh, let's say I'm here for, we know that Paul preached three Sabbaths at Thessalonica. Okay, he might have been there for a few more weeks. Imagine me here for three weeks and then saying, okay, I gotta go, good luck with that. Um, if we're in Colorado, can we buy weed? Like, what's the answer to that question? Like, how do, I, how do I deal, like, we got an election coming up in November, who do I vote for? Now, you'll, you'll have to figure that one, out. I mean, just think about just the weight of that. Your entire world system has been altered by the gospel, that Jesus Christ came and died in your place for your sins and is establishing a kingdom that we are now citizens of. And let's say I'm with you even for six months. Imagine six months of life and then Church, okay, occasional teaching, and then I say, I got to go. And think of the weight of the Mediterranean on the Apostle Paul. The, Paul says this in, in one of his letters to the, to the Corinth people, people in Corinth. He says, I feel the weight of all the churches. I feel the weight of, I just, I thought I was going to die thinking about caring for my three sons. Literally, didn't know if I could make it. And the Apostle Paul is dealing with this. I remember the first time I just stopped and I began to think about that. The Apostle Paul preaches and he teaches and then he leaves it to men. He leaves it to parents and says, I need you to continue what I started. Wow, I'll tell you, one of the biggest reasons why I believe in the Holy Spirit is because of that. And the church continued on. And by the way, let me say this, the church continued on, and at times it failed. At times it made wrong choices. At times it blew it. I get that the church is a complicated mess, and I get that people are a complicated mess. And I love the fact that in spite of us, the church continues, correct? In spite of us, the church is still a beautiful, living, breathing, I'm so grateful for a Bible. Take it for granted, right? You don't read it. You know, you know what the people in Corinth and people in Ephesus—you know what they would have done for something like this—and we just casually discard it, or just kind of relegate it to the side of our lives, and then we say, "Yeah, I don't really—I'm not really growing much as a Christian." I mean, these people are in essence hungry, and I'm—I'm sitting there with this spiritual plate of food. I don't know if I want just picking through it. Yeah, I don't know if I'm getting anything from this. Getting anything out of church today? I don't know. Not really. You know, I just the weight of what's happening. And one of the reasons why it's, it's good for us to even to think about that is because when you go back and you look at this, Paul to Timothy, um, we're going to see that he left them there for a very specific reason. So let's, let's, let's begin to kind of unpack the rest of, uh, of this text. So the Apostle Paul uh, and Timothy, let me back this up a little bit. The apostle Paul describes him as an apostle do you know what that word means we take it as a title notice it's not capitalized that matters we get wrapped up into apostle ooh one of the 12 like that by the way the bible never talks quite like that the bible doesn't ever talk like there were only 12 and that was because the 12 tribes of Israel that's us theologizing afterwards the bible never says that Bible Bible does say Jesus picked 12 disciples and one of them fell away, and then they replaced that one with another one named Matthias. and So the Bible literally thinks more in terms of function. We go, I get this question all the time, are you the pastor out at Sunnybrook? You know how many pastors we have? Uh, yeah, I'm one of the pastors. Are you the elder at Sunnybrook? Yeah, I'm one of the elders. We think capital E, elder. We think capital M, minister. We think capital P, pastor. And the Bible doesn't talk like that. The Bible talks far more, and by the way, I don't want to shy away from authority. We're gonna come back to that in a moment. The Bible talks more, a lot more in terms of function. I'm an apostle. So it's not, hey, I'm an apostle. It's, I'm an apostle. What is an apostle? The word literally means one sent, one commissioned to go by someone else to accomplish a task. So while we're going, ooh, must be nice, apostle Paul. Paul's going, uh, yeah, I've been, I've been sent to suffer. I've been sent to get on a ship. I've been sent to, to go to a place where nobody wants me. I've been sent to stand in a marketplace and preach the gospel and have people laugh at me. I have been sent to be a herald of the good news of who Jesus Christ is. That's, is that what you mean by woo? Is that what you're impressed with? And actually, I am. I'm impressed more with the commissioning. So the word apostle don't just go, wow, wow. The word apostle, you go, wow, someone has been trusted by God with this incredible message. You can't lose sight of the particular message. Now, he is one who is sent, and who is he tied to? And notice how he makes it very, very clear, and I just want to kind of draw attention to this, that we're going to see this name appear three times. Now, this name, as you probably know, Christ Jesus, Sounds more formal. Do you know that in the New Testament that the primary way in which Jesus is described, and I've said this a million times, I'll say it a million and one, Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. The predominant way in which he is referred to in the New Testament is Jesus Christ. Another way of of, of saying that or understanding that would be Jesus, the anointed one. Anointed what? Again, going back. If apostle is someone who is sent, commissioned by God for a reason, then this one here is focusing on Jesus Christ. Jesus, the anointed one. Anointed ones are kings. Anointed ones are prophets. Okay? And by the way, that's Jesus. He's the greatest king, and he's the greatest of all prophets. More than a prophet. So that's who Jesus Christ is. He has been anointed with a purpose. And now we actually see that Paul is one sent from who? Jesus. And and, and by the way, let me just say this, um, that the word apostle is actually used of women in the book of Romans. It's used of just generic people in both Acts and Romans, as well as one of the other, other one of Paul's letters. I can't remember which one it is right now. So it can sometimes mean, and I think this is where, where it, it actually has, there is, a, there is a value and there is an importance in the Apostle Paul, but it is tied to the fact, as we're about to see, that he has been commanded by God to do something. That's where the, that's where the value and the worth is. And, and this is where it's, it's helpful for us to remember that when we look at where authority comes from, authority is something that God ultimately holds. Authority and power is something that resides eventually. If you go and kind of go, you want to say, kind of going up the food chain, when you get to the very top, who's at the very top? That'd be God. You know, if you did that, well, who's his boss? Well, who's his boss? Well, who's. You keep going up that. Eventually, it's God. Therefore, authority in the Bible is described as derived from God. So, God says to moms and dads, I need you to train up your kids, I need you to lead your kids. And God bestows authority and rebellion by the way against parents is punishable in the old testament by death why well i I told my kids this you you tell me if i'm crazy when they were really little i need you to listen to me i need you to obey me we had we had three rules as a family truth respect and obedience you need to obey me why and i said because of god because if you're not going to obey me then i know what's going to happen if you're not going to listen to me you're not going to listen to your teachers Have you had this kid in your class you're Not gonna listen to your parents. Not gonna listen to your teachers. Not gonna listen to the police. Not gonna listen to anybody. This is what happens when we just when we don't listen, and we're 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 shaking off authority structures. You're gonna be a terror to to work with. You're gonna be a terrible employee. You'd be a terrible boss if you don't get. I mean, I love what the one 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 uh, Roman leader says to Jesus. I too am a man who has authority I say go and they go I say come and they. I, I say you just tell my servant you just tell one Texas servant, the other says son you tell my servant you tell my son and and it will be done he understood the authority thing and that's where the Apostle Paul is getting his authority from I am one cent of and the Christ at the beginning of that word is not a small thing three times in the text, it's not a small thing. He is drawing attention to the Messiah. That's kind of like the way we would say it. The Messiah, Jesus. He's focusing on this is where this is coming from. Now, some scholars think that's a little bit strange because Timothy's his buddy. Timothy's one of his companions. And, And so it's good for you to realize this, that although that the author is Paul and the audience is Timothy, it's not just Paul, and it's, or it is just Paul, but it's not just Timothy. It is also the church at Ephesus. So it is to Timothy, but it's not, it's not just a private letter. Timothy's not just, oh, good, a letter from Paul. Open it up, read it. Oh, that was fun, throw it away. No, even the, one of the reasons why we know that this letter had significant value at the church at Ephesus is because it has continued through to this day. And you'll see why as we begin to unpack this book, you'll begin to see numerous, numerous times in which the instruction that Paul gives Timothy is not just good advice, but it is a word that the church needs to hear all the way up to today. So, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, emphasis on Christ and Messiah, by the command, or by, no, 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 the, actually, by command of God our Savior. Now, that's a very interesting phrase. How do you, I mean, see, you just read that and go, God our Savior, right? How many of you would do that? You'd read it, God our, how many of you read that? God our Savior. You know that that's not a normal term for him. That's like like weird. The word Savior, actually, just the word itself, I would think, if you would ask me, how, how, how often does the word Savior appear in the Bible? Oh, probably thousands, probably hundreds. No, actually, it's not. It appears only 24 times in the entire New Testament, the word Savior, 10 out of the 24 in First and Second Timothy and Titus. Those are known as the pastorals. If I accidentally say the pastorals, that's First and Second Timothy and Titus. These three letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus. 10 out of the 24 refers to the word Savior. The word salvation is found a few more times, but specifically Savior, that's different. Now, here's one of the reasons why I love thinking about this idea is because one of the most important ideas that we need to have is that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one. It is so important that we understand the the unity within the Trinity, that we understand just how well these fit together. And I love what one scholar says, F.F. Bruce says, that the way the apostle Paul seems to talk about, particularly Jesus and the Father, Jesus and God the Father, the way he talks about them is almost like he just, he sees them, as like mom and dad. Kind of like they're one person, mom and dad. God and Jesus, just like they're together. The father and the son, they're together. It's, and by the way, before you go, well, of course, think about this. What growing up, what was was Paul's heritage? Jewish. (laughs) You talk to any Jewish person today, one of the biggest problems they have is Jesus claimed to be God. The apostle Paul, by the time that he writes this, probably in the early 60s, um, not 1960, by the way, but the early 60s, literally the first 60s on this side of AD, um, the Apostle Paul writes this and it is already firmly entrenched in his mind. So how did the the Apostle Paul become an apostle? It says it right in our text, what does it say? By the command of God our Savior. The saving act of God in salvation matters a lot. Actually, it's not like it's a shock to us, but it is so rare that this comes up people wonder why is he trying to emphasize this? Why is he trying to emphasize this? One of the things that I, I didn't even find many commentators that did this, but I did a paper in uh, in college years ago. The apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 says goodbye to some Ephesian elders. And he does this as he's on his way back to Jerusalem. He thinks he's gonna die and never see them again. And the apostle Paul says this as he's leaving. He says to these elders, I have entrusted to you, the church at Ephesus, and I want you to care for, listen to this phrase, care for the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I mean, again, if you're not really paying, it, do you get that? God purchased the church with his own blood. You would go, okay, so you mean Jesus. Yeah, but that's not what he said. He says God purchased the church with his own blood. Again, the unity of Father and the unity of Jesus Um, and and maybe because I have a a young man who's Muslim who lives with me, um, I just cannot stress enough that in a day and in an age where Jesus keeps getting relegated to the sidelines, he cannot stand there. He is fundamentally different than any other prophet. He is truly God. And this text actually somewhat infers that. Notice this, by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope, the construction of this actually has it so that the God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope is describing one thing, okay? So God, Jesus together clearly are a part of this. And if you think it's strange to hear that phrase um, of, uh, of God, Savior, only appearing four times in the Bible, the idea of Jesus being described as hope is actually a, a rather unique idea as well. Now, by the way, these would be some of the last books written in the New Testament And so the church, even Paul himself, this is a great lesson to learn. Even Paul himself, by the way, is learning who Jesus Christ is. You know that, right? So I think sometimes when I grew up, I kind of thought like Paul became a Christian and God just said, okay, open up your head. And then God just, you know, kind of like in the matrix. Remember the matrix? I want to learn karate and he kind of plug him in and now he knows karate. And I kind of think that's how the disciples, no, that's not how they did it. The apostle Paul is is learning and thinking, man, I love that phrase. Jesus who is our hope. It's interesting how important it is and how critical it is that we actually see in Jesus Christ our hope. And notice that the word our is actually uh, attributed to both, God, our savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. Verse two, by the way, I'm not gonna do it this slow uh, the entire semester, I promise. Verse two. To Timothy, we already said that my true child in the faith, my true—the word "true" is actually the same word that is used to describe not false. Okay? There's a Greek word Athalia, where we get the we get the woman's name. Um, uh, no, there's a woman's name for it, Althea. That's what it is. It took me a second to of Think it was. I mean, there's an Althea here too. Althea is from the Greek word meaning truth. And truth, althea, is the common word for that, and then there's false. That's not what it is. This is actually a different Greek word, which actually means true in the genuine sense, not fake. It's a, it's a very kind of a, a relegated, a kind of small used word meaning that there is a genuineness to who Timothy is, which by the way, matters. I mean, do we ask that question all the time in terms of was their faith genuine? Was their repentance, repentance genuine? And by the way, if if, if all faith is just the same, which I think a lot in our our culture, we kind of just think we're all the same, everybody's all the same, we're not. There are those of us who are more mature, those who are less mature, those of us who are new in our faith, those of us who are now been in our faith for a very, very long time, there are those of us who are stumbling in our faith. This is what the the book of 1 Timothy is going to tell us. Faith is not faith is not faith. The disciples say to Jesus, increase our faith. Right, I think some of you right now chose, I'm going to be here on Wednesday night because I want to grow in my faith. And I just pray that it is just like this text describes, my true child in the faith. Now, by the way, that word in the faith, that phrase in the faith, that prepositional phrase can either be the idea that Timothy has a genuine faith, okay, which is known as a subjective clause, or it can actually be the faith as an object, okay? And most likely, it means that second one, that not only is this faith genuine, but how do Paul and Timothy have value and worth with each other? And this is what I find very interesting, is that when you think, and this is is why it's good for us to take a look at how the Bible teaches, when you think of how the Bible describes family, And I, I've got a funeral tomorrow, and one of the people when I was meeting with them and they were talking about uh, what they loved about their mom, they said, I'll tell you, she just really loved her family. I get it. And she just, she loved her two daughters, her one son, she loved her grandkids, she loved her husband, she was so faithful, she just loved her family. By the way, the Bible teaches that we should love our families, okay? It says if you don't care for your families, if you don't love your family, actually the Bible describes you as an unbeliever. It says you're worse than an unbeliever if you don't provide for your family. So that's what the Bible describes. But the Bible also comes along and says, actually, there's not just this family, but there's actually a deeper understanding of what family is. And Jesus Christ, when asked the question, or when the statement was made to him, your your brother and your sisters and your mother is here, what does Jesus say? He's not trying to be a smart aleck. Who is my father? Who is, or who is my, he knows who his father is, that was a big mistake. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? And then what does he tell them? Those who do the will of my father are who they are. And so Paul is writing to Timothy, and he is saying, he is my true son. Most likely, Paul had, we don't know of any children that Paul ever had, but we do know of Timothy, and we do know of Titus, and Silas, and many others. And because Paul's understanding of family is not just blood, okay? It's not just blood. It's actually water. And so the phrase, blood is thicker than water, you know what that is insinuating? Real family is more important than church family. Okay, this is blood. This is blood, man. This is my brother. He's my brother from my mother. He's my brother. That's my sister. That's just, you know, that's family, family. And Jesus crashes into that. He says, no, it's actually, there's something far more profound. And by the way, some of us think about that and go, yay, I get more. But it's also designed, actually, to care for more. It's not just I get. we also get the responsibility to, right? How many of you are, again, overwhelmed by taking care of one or two children? And now all of a sudden, do we realize, and this is is the part that I, I cannot shake, going back and thinking about the obligation of the Apostle Paul, the apostle Paul feels an obligated to those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm just obligated. I remember talking to a young man as I was describing just the burden that I felt for his spiritual growth and development. And this guy looked at me and he went, dude, chill. Like it's not that big of a deal. You don't need to worry about my spiritual growth. I said, it's not you I'm worried. It, it, it's, not, it's not somehow like this responsibility that I've got to you that I'm concerned about. It's the idea that God has given me this responsibility to care for you as a brother in Christ. Like I don't even feel like it comes from you, it comes from him. And by the way, this is kind of the repeated phrase throughout the Bible. I mean, how many of you have heard this? By the way, the decision between heaven and hell is if you have a brother or a sister who is in need and you don't decide to help them. Seriously? Like hell is over a cup of cold water? Hell is over visiting in prison? Hell is over. Jesus, Matthew 25, yes, it is. Jesus makes it a heaven or hell issue. So it's one thing for us to go, isn't it cute? We're all family. For those of you that are moms, you really get this. Yeah, the church of God is truly family. Changes the way that we look at them. The other thing that I love to think about in terms of just the faith, and now Paul's and Timothy's connection to this, is the is, is kind of the, the, the growing attitude and the responsibility that is necessary that goes both ways? So it is Paul to Timothy, and it is also Timothy to Paul. Paul is at the last days of his life, and now all of a sudden, instead of him just being the Apostle Paul, da, 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 he's in prison and he is saying, Come to me soon, like I need you, Timothy. True child in the faith. He continues on grace, mercy, and peace. Now, this word here is kind of an interesting word the word mercy. The Apostle Paul uses these other two words in every single letter. It is just a normal way in which all letters, you go back and read any other one of Paul's letters, grace and peace to you. Charis, grace and peace, eriné. Chorus, grace, meaning God's gift, God's overflowing, gracious, generous, just everything, not just Jesus on the cross. Sometimes we think of grace as just Jesus on the cross. But you want to see some amazing grace? Watch this. God just gave me a breath. It's just God's grace, God's um, unmerited favor upon us, which just keeps flowing day after day after day. And so it became a greeting, grace to you. And then peace. In, in Hebrew, they still love to say this. What do they say? Shalom. Shalom, peace to you. Peace to you. Now, what is, is, is somewhat interesting is that word peace, and this is important, Peace is not a, um, it's not a feeling or an emotion. Are you at peace? That's really not what it is. It's not a, I feel like I'm at peace, or I feel like I'm anxious. We're, we're in a culture, I, I don't, as long as I've ever lived, I've never seen so many people wrestling with anxiety, okay, and anxiousness. What's interesting is, is that this idea of peace as described here, and notice where it comes from. This grace, mercy, and peace comes from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So notice, again, you have the connection of God and Jesus. And what comes from them? Grace, what comes from them? Mercy, we'll talk about that in a moment. What comes from them? Peace. This is more valuable than, um, this, was, this was kind of my, one of my favorite thoughts as I was preparing for this, I should've added an eraser. When we think about peace, we usually think about, do I feel like I'm at peace? So I feel like I'm at peace? One of the reasons why chasing that is wrong and why, the, why chasing that actually is futile. I was telling the story in our staff meeting the other day about a time when Andrea and I were traveling way back when the boys were little and the boys were probably like five, three, and uh, one or so and we were traveling to go somewhere. And I just uh, the boy said, well, when are you coming home? And I remember thinking to myself, Like, I mean, I don't think the plane's gonna crash, but just in case it does, I don't wanna lie to my kids. And so they were five, three and one, so I figured they could take it. So I said, well, I I think we're coming back. Like, we're planning on coming back. And everybody laughed, right? Because they thought that was just nuts. Like, why would you tell a five-year-old that? You're just gonna scare your five-year-old. I know you can't just go back and look at it backwards, but what's very interesting is, um, like, my kids have never really worried about me in that sense, right? And yet I know lots of kids who worry all the time about their parents dying. So it's kind of fascinating how, um, I mean, how many of you have kind of tried to protect your kids and they're still anxious? Anyone? Anyone just thought, okay, I'm gonna just protect my kids and then they won't be anxious. Is that working for you? It really doesn't. And by the way, I would say neither of those things work. Being brutally honest and letting them have it probably causes trauma, right? By hiding them, we're just not gonna let you know that there are bad things in the world? How's that working? Right? It's not working. This is what I, I love about this idea. And, I, I, and I, by the way, I'm, I'm an anxious person. I've spent much of my uh, early life just tormented with worry. So I get it. For those of you that are worrying, I, I share that pain. This peace actually is not a subjective feeling, but it is an objective reality. It works backwards. In the Jewish mind, it's this Is God at war with you? because that matters the most. Is God at war with you? And the answer is no, actually, we're at peace. Oh, well then, shalom. Like if you're at peace with God, then tell me what you're worried about. And, and by the way, that, I, I, do not, I do not believe in magic and I do not believe in just these cliches or short, but I want you to just think through that. Think about how much peace should come as we look at our lives and understand that if my relationship with God is sound and he is the one and he is not at war with me, there is no animosity. I had to really stop in my office and and think through this. How does God, how do I think God looks at me? I want you to think about that for a moment. How does God look at you? Is he kind of looking at you going, seriously, Tim? Ugh. Is that is God's disposition towards you one of displeasure? Or is God, and by the way, he can be a father who will still discipline you. Right? Don't don't lose that. Don't don't get mixed up in that idea. There can still be a discipline process that's necessary. But I know exactly, I mean, for those of you that are parents, you get this. Have you ever, like, disciplined your kids, like, crazy because you loved them so much and you're at peace so you kind of created a war for them because you're really at peace with them so that they could, right? You know what I'm talking about? So God will work through that, but the kind of peace that the Apostle Paul is describing and the kind of peace that we ultimately need to have is not based on a subjective feeling most of our peace that we have is based circumstantially on our, life, on, our, on our lives. Is it not? Enough money at the end of the month. How's my health? Those closest to me. How do I feel about the future? Hmm. I'm at peace. Take away any of those, and I'm not at peace. Well, Tell me how God fits into this. Because I'll tell you, what changes everything is tell me I got like three days to live. Yeah, I don't, election means nothing to me now three days end of the month i'm not even making it to the end of the month i'm not even making it to sunday three days what's what's your now your number one priority it better be right what is it god i got to meet him god are you at peace with him yes so the jewish thinking and paul's thinking here grace and peace to you from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord, Christ Jesus our Lord. The word mercy, by the way, is never found anywhere else in terms of in that statement at the beginning of a letter. He says it here though, and it actually coincides with the Hebrew word chesed, which is my, literally my favorite Hebrew word. Chesed is the word for covenantal faithfulness. It is God's, God's mercy because of his covenant to his people Israel which is there when they are faithless, it it is there when they are in the process of being brought back to him. And Paul says to Timothy, who's by the way in very difficult circumstances, he says, may God's grace, his abounding favor, which you cannot merit, may his chesed, his covenantal faithfulness, which is more sure than the ground beneath your feet, and may the ultimate peace the shalom, the you are, at, you are at one with God and there is no animosity between you and God right now. I just, I literally had to stop and think, I, I've always, I kind of generally, if you are just catch me, does God like you? Sure, he loves me, I think I would say that. And I don't know why, but because I had a, like a strong, very strong father that I always wondered if I was failing or disappointing. is a big part of my life growing up, even though he loved me like crazy. Um, I think sometimes I wonder how God, what God's disposition is towards me. And for those of you that are right now that are going, yeah, I, I really do that. I worry about that sometimes. What is God's disposition towards me? How does he feel about me? What's our answer? How do we go back and we answer that? This is the beautiful, this beautiful part of theology is you do this. Well, tell me what he thinks about Jesus. Do you know, can you answer that question? If you don't know what God thinks about you, just answer this. What does God think about Jesus? You got that one? Does he love him? Is he pleased with him? Right, following that one? Okay, Paul says, and your life is hidden in Christ. That's, and by the way, that's grace. That's charis at its greatest extent. So if you ever wanna know how God feels about you, okay, and this this just hits me, this just overwhelms me. It's like, I don't deserve this. And God goes, I know. (laughs) Isn't that amazing that you don't deserve? Yeah, but God, you don't know. And you know, I do know. And He says to me constantly, You don't know. You don't know my grace. You don't know my chesed. You do not know my peace. I spent some time in my office today just kind of rethinking what I thought about what God thinks about me. And it did my soul good. I would challenge you to do the same. And by the way, if you're going, no, that something's disconnected, connect to Jesus all makes sense. Disconnect from Jesus, I'd be worried too. Connect to Jesus, all makes sense. Final phrase, as I urged you, the word urged is actually a word parakaleo in the Greek, um, where we get the word paraclete. It means to strongly encourage. It's not the typical word as I urged you, it's not a threat, but as I urged you, when I was going to Macedonia, so Paul is where, we don't know where Paul is when he says it. Some commentators assume he's in Ephesus with Timothy at the time, but we don't know that. Paul says, I urged you that you need to, as he was going on to Macedonia to continue to do some work with the church either at Thessalonica or the church at Philippi or another, another area. What I want you to do is I want you to remain, where it appears only four times in the Greek New Testament it means to stay put. It also brings with it the idea of endurance and being patient. I want you to remain at this wonderful city known as Ephesus. And as we're going to unpack over the next few weeks, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. Let me give you three final thoughts. The three final things that I see from this church, from this letter, and I'm gonna say them rather quickly actually. Number one, Paul is telling Timothy to stay behind in the church at Ephesus to set things right, which tells me this. Church matters. I have always been and I will continue to always be concerned about how Christians, how the world views the church, literally, not my concern. The, The church thinks the world is upside down or backwards, whatever. They don't get it anyway. They really don't. When I hear about Christians that don't understand the church and don't value the church and don't don't recognize the church as the bride of Christ, as the household of faith. You're you're really missing something. And by the way, I'm not talking about church attendance. I'm talking about life together. And Paul on his way to Macedonia says, I need you to stay at Ephesus. And literally, it's almost like, and even if they kill you, it'll be worth your life. That's how much he loves the church. Those things which many of us just kind of treat casually or as a, like a buffet to serve me, church matters. He's gonna talk about leadership. He's gonna talk about elders and deacons. He's gonna talk about caring for, for widows. He's gonna talk about how to raise up young women and young men, church matters. Number two, doctrine matters. Paul says to Timothy, I want you to just deal with false teachers. I want you to confront them. And I don't want, you, you don't let them teach that. Just, that's an amazing, how do I not let someone teach that? Paul says, you just stop them. That's, that's amazing to me. So this whole idea of, well, you can believe what you believe, and I can believe what I believe, and it really doesn't matter. It's the American way. You get yours, and I get mine. I, I get it. And in, in a country, I'm actually grateful for it. But in a church, no, Jim doesn't get to think what, he think what he wants to think, and neither do you. Doctrine, the beliefs that we have matter, and they come from where? The Word of God. Lastly, ethics. Ethics matter. So not just what we believe, but how we live. The Apostle Paul continually pleads with Timothy, live your life, live your life with integrity and pure heart. Like people are watching you, and don't let anybody give an excuse to to not believe your message because of the way that you're living your life. How I've written it a million times, I'm sure I'll begin next week, something like this. Orthodoxy, the things that we believe matters, and they are intimately connected to orthopraxy. Right doctrine and right practice go side by side. And Timothy is in Ephesus, and he is going to set the record straight. So as we come back, we're gonna just kinda unpack next week. I think we're gonna probably do like 14, 15 verses, so it's gonna have to go a lot quicker. Um, But that is the book for us. Uh, Let me pray, and we are done. God, I thank you for this time together and for this amazing uh, letter that I have just thoroughly enjoyed, even more so over the last few years particularly as I've had a chance to sit down with young men and to talk about what it means to, to be leaders in our homes. Father, I pray that we would take seriously your word, that we would take seriously um, what it means, be um, followers of you. And Father, I pray um, that truly this, this exercise of, of learning more about you and mer- learning more about who you are uh, would truly shape and change the way we have our most significant relationships in our lives. So God, we give this time to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Love you guys, God bless, and we will see you Sunday.